Hello and welcome to the Music Retailers Podcast. I'm your host, Donovan Bankhead, and together you and I are going to listen to and learn from some of my favorite instrumental music retailers, manufacturers, well, anyone else that I think would be interesting. My goal is to provide a podcast where you can learn something new in every episode. So let's dive in. Today's interview is with Randy Shaler from Zeswitz Music in Pennsylvania. Zeswitz is a school music dealer, but I think you'll find our conversation today will be truly fascinating, even if you are not a school music dealer. In my opinion, Randy is one of the smartest guys in our industry. He comes into our industry with a finance background, not a music background, and his thought processes on service and metrics is truly fascinating to listen to. So let's take a listen. At Springfield Music, we started using Merchant Cost Consulting earlier this year. These guys are former banking and credit card reps who go and negotiate your processing rates on your behalf. Now, like most of you, we're pretty aggressive about shopping our processing rate around, so I wasn't sure they'd be able to save us much money. But boy, was I wrong. On average, they're saving us about 600 bucks a month. The deal is we split it 50-50 with them for so many months, and after that, all the savings are ours to keep. Plus, they keep an eye on your fees during this time to make sure those freaking credit card processors don't find a way to jack up your rate again. They're good folks, and they do what they say they do. Actually, in our case, they under-promised and over-delivered. They estimated about 500 bucks a month in savings, and it's been closer to 600 When you contact Patrick at Merchant Cost Consulting, tell him that Donovan Bankhead sent you. This does two things. One, they will pay me a slight referral commission. But more importantly, two you'll get 10% off of your first month's bill if you choose to go with them after their free analysis. Listen, I wouldn't recommend it to you if it wasn't worth it. It'll only take a few minutes of your time. They handle the rest. Contact Patrick McClellan. His email is patrick at merchantcostconsulting.com. P-A-T-R-I-C-K at merchantcostconsulting.com. I'll even give you a cell phone number, 508-733-7622. And remember, tell them that Donovan sent you. First question, tell me a little bit about your business. And specifically, like, I want to know a little bit of the history of Zeswitz Music. And uh, and then I would really want to hear, like, how you uh, got involved and what your background was. Sure. So Zeswitz Music was founded by William Zeswitz in 1923. Um, so Bill Sr. Uh, was a violin maker and he was working in his uncle's shop in Philadelphia. And um, he had uh, the insight that there was really nothing north of Philadelphia in, in sort of middle of eastern Pennsylvania, uh, no source for good quality violins at reasonable prices. So he hung out his own shingle. So he took he took the skills that he learned at his uncle's shop um, in, in the city of Philadelphia and and started out in Reading, um, building violins, actually carving them from, from blocks of wood. Um, so that was 1923. Since then, um, Zeswitz uh, really found its stride in the 50s and 60s working with school music programs and um, was one of the many companies that pioneered the music rental as an alternative to purchasing a musical instrument as the perfectly appropriate solution for a beginner who doesn't know how long they're going to take um, uh, how, t- how long you're going to need an instrument, how long they're going to take it. And then also for, you know, obviously for the string instruments who, uh, whose users need to uh, get larger and larger instruments as their arms grow, the rental is just kind of a perfect fit. So as Zeswitz um, started doing that in the 50s and 60s, that became increasingly the focus of the business. Um, and it was it was owned by the family. It passed into its second generation um, from Bill Zeswitz, Zeswitz Sr. to Bill Zeswitz Jr., um, in the 1980s. And then in the late 90s, or right around the year 2000, um, it was sold to Brooke Mays. So the Zezwitz family sold it to the, to, uh, to the Brooke Mays conglomerate. As Brooke Mays was, was acquiring um, musical uh, instrument retailers throughout the country and, and rolling them up into a big uh, national operation. Zezwitz was one of, the, uh, was one of the, the independent operations that became part of the Brooke Mays family. Then unfortunately, 
uh, in the Brooke Mays bankruptcy, which is something, a whole other topic. We could probably do a whole podcast on that. Um, <laughs> you know, just a very, just a very unfortunate situation for Brooke Mays that had nothing to do with the profitability. I think of the underlying business or certainly nothing to do with the profitability of Zeswit. Zeswit was, as far as we know, consistently profitable since it was founded. Um, but at, anyway, after the Brooke Mays bankruptcy, um, Zeswitz was sold off as a, as a going concern to a company in Boston called Rayburn Music. Um, and then I bought the business from Rayburn in 2013. Um, the owner of Rayburn was, was looking to uh, simplify her life. Um, she was uh, sort of getting towards the end of her career and didn't have any sons or daughters looking to take over the business. She has two daughters, actually, and they're both attorneys. Um, so they weren't really looking to get involved um, in the music rental or, or retail industry. So she put the business up for sale. I found it from a, uh, an investment banker in New York or really a business broker in New York. And, uh, and I acquired it in 2013. Interesting. I'm kind of making a few notes here because we can go back to some stuff. So now, yeah. uh, this is, so this business, obviously Zeswit's been around for a long time, has a history in the school music business that's actually not unlike probably most other established school music dealers. Kind of found a niche, got in the rental business and started. But what's really interesting is the shakeup starting around 2000 and going you know, having obviously Brooke Mays, who at that point was one of the largest companies our industry purchased it, and then through a variety of issues on their own, that going into bankruptcy, and then and then you purchasing it. Now, I think the part of the story that's also unusual, other than the fact that uh, you know this this over half a century old business is acquired and goes through bankruptcy and has always been profitable, which is kind of unique. But your background, you didn't work in the store and buy it from inside, and, and you didn't even necessarily come from a music background specifically, did you? No, not at all, actually. So my uh, we, we joke. I mean, that you know, we've got about 23,000 musical instruments in the fleet and I don't know how to play any of them very well. I play the radio <laughs> is what I say when I, when people ask me what I play. Um, no, so I, you know, I played the clarinet when I was in fifth grade and, and didn't really appreciate all the benefits that I all know of now. Um, why, why playing music is important, but I, I stuck with it through about ninth grade and, and ended my musical career. Um, in my, from my perspective, due to just a complete lack of talent, I was really never a very good clarinet player. Um, but no, I was, uh, so I, I came to the acquisition, um, from a totally different background. I, I was, uh, a management consultant out of undergrad, then went and did my MBA. Um, and when I was finishing up at Harvard business school, I found out about this concept called a search fund and what a search fund does similar to that situation I was telling you about with the owner of, of, um, of Rayburn music search funds are really focused on acquisitions in the situation where a business isn't quite big enough for a traditional private equity firm to buy, um, but where there's a, a business owner who is you know lacking a succession plan, they don't really have sons or daughters looking to to, to take over a business. And it's kind of too small to sell to a private equity firm, kind of too big to sell the employees. Um, there's a there's a size range there that that is really kind of an awkward situation, and more and more businesses find themselves in that situation because a lot of baby boomers own businesses and they're getting to be about that age where they're starting to think about retirement. So search funds um, it, uh, as a concept pair the entrepreneur or the, the the person who could potentially run these businesses with capital to acquire the businesses. And they go out and search for, which hence the name, they search for those opportunities um, to, to make those investments and take over those those businesses. So I did a, I started a search fund um, after graduating business school in 2012 and, uh, and made this acquisition in 2013. And when I did it, Donovan, I was, I was looking for an equipment rental business, actually. So I did a project when I was in um, business school on, on a really attractive niche in the equipment rental market, uh, which is trench safety rental. Um, anytime you dig a hole deeper than five feet and put a worker in it, OSHA requires that you shore the sides of the hole. Um, to prevent cave-ins and, and folks getting buried. So there are businesses that rent these things called trench boxes that you can stick in the hole. And, and you'd recognize them if you saw them because you see them a lot on, on like the sides of highways and on construction sites. Right. They're very low tech. They're two pieces of steel with a couple of pipes that go in between them. Um, but the thing about trench boxes, you know, if, if you're doing a project and you don't have one, you can't, you, the production stops. Um, so their, 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 uh, reliability is a big factor in that market. And then also, you know, you have to have the right size trench box for the particular excavation that you're doing. 
Um, so there's all these little businesses that rent, or at the time, there were all these little businesses that rented trench boxes. Well, I, I found one while I was in business school and did a finance project on, on a potential acquisition. It was in a uh, uh, North Carolina-based trench safety rental business um, and uh, just absolutely fell in love with the industry. Well, two things happened since then. One... Um, I wasn't the only one who realized what a great opportunity this was. And the big players in the equipment rental business started buying up these little trench safety businesses. So United Rentals, Sunbelt, and RSC all started acquiring these smaller trench rentals, trench safety rental businesses. And that kind of happened during my second year of business school. Um, and then the other thing that happened is my finance professors that I did that project for, I was a, a co co-taught class. There were two professors that were teaching that class, one of whom is a PhD economist. Um, and the other one is a member of the adjunct faculty who had founded a private equity firm um, and was really successful in, in a, a media and telecom private equity space. Um, so they saw that project and they agreed with me that that would have been a great investment opportunity. And they said, you know, if you think about doing this for real after graduation, you really ought to come talk to us because you know we, we like putting capital work behind interesting projects. Um, and so those two things happened. My, uh, you know, the, the, that particular opportunity got sold and, and that industry got rolled up. Um, and I went into business with my, with my professor, with my finance professor. So they became my investors in my search fund. Um, and I struck out after graduation, um, with my MBA to try to figure out what other, uh, industries might be, might have similar characteristics to that trench safety rental business that I just fell in love with. Um, and lo and behold, and I never could have predicted this, um, you know, an investment banker, or this business broker sent me, sent me the listing for Zeswitz and said, Hey, I know, I know this isn't exactly what you're looking for. It's not, you know, construction equipment, you know, but have I rent musical instruments? <laughs> so I've got to know, like, what did your professor think and the other investors when you went back and like, hey, you know, how about this real niche thing that only a small percentage of the population does? <laughs> you know, what was their initial thoughts? Did it take some convincing or did they see uh, the wisdom in that right off the bat? Um, you, you know, I think, um, I, I think the wisdom in it is pretty apparent off the bat. So, uh, you know, it was, it, it, the things that I liked about, uh, about this business are that the, um, you know, the, the, the service is so much more important than the actual object itself. And, you know, especially to the extent that, that we become vital to the musical, uh, to the, to the music education programs that we serve, where we're providing repairs and where we're, we're, um, you know, uh, uh, really focused on on-time deliveries. You know, when a, when a musical instrument is broken, you know, that's a student who just can't benefit from the teacher's, uh, talents or, or from the educational opportunity because that instrument needs to get fixed. Um, there's a huge service component to making sure that that instrument gets back to that classroom timely. Well, number one, that it doesn't break in the first place. And then number two, to make sure that that instrument gets back timely to the classroom. So that had a lot of the same kind of aspects that, that really I found attractive in that, that equipment rental, um, deal. And then the other thing is, you know, we benefit, you know, although, although our business is capital intensive, you know, we have to invest a lot in the instrument up front. Um, and then, and then we make money over time as we, as we utilize that asset and rent the instrument. You know, the nice thing is there's not a lot of inventory obsolescence, right? They haven't changed the design of a violin since the 17th century. So, um, you know, we don't have to worry about, uh, about our inventory spoiling or becoming undesirable over time. And that's true in our business. Certainly we have, um, string instruments, especially fractional size strings that were first purchased in the eighties that are still um, in great shape and, and out on rent making us money. Well, I think that's probably a challenge though. Like, uh, you know, when you get into the rental business, trying to keep your inventory looking appealing. And uh, of course, I guess you can handle the uh, cosmetic appeal through discounts. If something has been uh, rented to the point where it's cosmetically challenged, then sometimes an exceptionally low price makes it look a little more appealing. But have you guys, uh, how have you kind of dealt with that issue of like an aging or, uh, you know, to use that term again, a cosmetically challenged rental pool, how have you dealt with customer acceptance or any issues that customers have with using some aged product like that? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there certainly is a limit to what I'm telling you about the, you know, inventory obsolescence. I mean, there certainly is, um, is, is inventory wear and tear and, and you're right, Donovan. I mean, that the number one issue we deal with isn't the functionality or the playability of the instrument. It's the appearance of the instrument. Um, I'll tell you, I got a, a, a trumpet sitting behind me in my office. Um, this is my favorite trumpet in our whole fleet. It has scratched into the lacquer. I hate my mom and dad. <laughs> um, you know, 
<laughs> there's just not a whole lot we can do about that. Um, and that, that poor kid, uh, you know, is not going to be a trumpet player. And, and he made that very clear. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and anyway, that, that particular uh, message I just thought was so funny. I just had to save that one and, and sort of pluck it out and keep it. Um, oh but no, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the whole cosmetic, cosmetic issues are, are, are just a continual problem. So, you know, we try to do what we can as far as it, when, when it comes to um, like a brass instrument, like theoretically, we could have stripped that instrument down and had it relacquered. Um, not something we do in-house because of environmental concerns. We don't have a sure. booth or, or want to try to deal with that. Um, so we send those out to get relacquered. Or, uh, you know, in, the, in terms of a string instrument, you know, it really doesn't make sense to do a whole lot to a string instrument cosmetically. Um, but we, you know, we've got some some folks that, uh, you know, come to us with, with furniture refinishing experience. Um, who are pretty good at touching some stuff up. I mean, it, you know, it, it's it's never going to look like brand new again. But um, but in a lot of cases, um, you know, it comes out looking pretty nice. And 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 character is not such a bad thing in a string instrument either. Yeah, that's. Uh, tell me a little bit about the the you know the folks with that furniture repair restoration. Like, what kind of things are they able to do to those string instruments to resurrect their life? I hadn't really ever given that much thought. That's fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest thing that that I think they're they're um, that they bring to the table is just the ability to really accurately match the color of the finish, um, which is no small feat. I mean, and it takes a lot of sort of mixing and fine tuning to come up with exactly the right color um, when you're when you're sort of touching up a scratch or a crack. Um, so that's that's one thing. And then they also have like the world's tiniest like single hair brushes that they can kind of, you know, put the grain back across a, a crack or a, or a blemish too, to, to try to bring it back up. You know, again, at some point it gets, it gets crazy because even though they could repair something, we constantly have to be worried about, you know, is this a sensible investment of labor? Yeah. Um, and you know, when, when realistically, you know, we could just be, you know, replacing the instrument and that's, yeah. that is ultimately, you know, if we replace the instrument, we end up with a brand new one again. And that, there's a lot of advantages to that. Yeah. The, yeah. You get increased value from that and everything else. So, um, it certainly makes sense. You made a statement earlier that I think is really smart and I'd kind of, Oh, you've made a lot of statements that were really smart, not just one, but, uh, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> uh, but one that you said that I think could really be applicable to a lot of people is you said, the service that we're offering is more important than the item itself. And um, I think sometimes, you know, in retail, we can get really locked into our specific item and our pricing. And then I think if we try to uh, think beyond that and try to think be, think of ourselves as really smart retailers, we do start to think of service. But I think sometimes we're thinking of service just in the service with a smile type mentality, but I'm gathering that you actually meant something even further beyond that, that you have really thought about your rental program and how you're, uh, what you're offering there in order to minimize the downtime that students and teachers have through your rental service. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've used service specifically to uh, set yourself apart? Yeah, absolutely. I, so, and, and maybe this is partially because of my benefit of coming from outside the, the industry. Um, I, I'm, I was never super passionate about the instruments themselves, but more passionate about what they do. And I took inspiration from the way that generally with a GE general electric sells, um, their, their industrial, uh, uh, power turbines and, and the, the way that they do, they don't generally speaking, they don't really sell the turbine. They sell what they call power by the hour. Um, so it's not about the, the device that they install on the, uh, steam boiler. It's about the availability and the uptime of that device. And so it takes away, um, you know, the, any of the technical aspects of, of what they're selling. So like applying that to our industry, um, you know, it, I think it's less about the violin than it is about the students. This is just a device that a student needs in order to be able to have academic achievement in the curriculum that the school has for their music program. And right. the availability of that device, whatever it may be, violin, you know, trumpet, trombone, um, it is if the parents chooses to work with us for a rental is our responsibility. So if we look at it that way, it starts to broaden our, our, uh, our sort of perspective on, on our role and, and really start to understand um, what we can do to, to make sure that we're staying out of the way of that student's economic or that student's uh, uh, academic 
progress. So, you know, for example, um, it makes it really clear that what we need to do when an instrument breaks is to be really quickly responsive. So not only get a loaner out as quickly as we can, but you know what, we better fix that instrument as quickly as we can. So the business, when I bought it, you know, used to, I think, take that responsibility seriously, but didn't really measure it very often. And so we started measuring what is our repair turnaround time. Um, and in measuring that, um, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure. And we started to find ways that we could, we could achieve faster and faster turnaround times. Um, one of our, one of our schools actually, um, was more attuned to this issue than we were. They wanted us to always, um, uh, uh, return an instrument within one week of picking it up. And that was, that was their standard that they imposed upon us. And we were able to achieve it a lot. And this was before I, before I joined the company, this just became a thing. This one particular school district always got a one week turnaround. So we looked at that and said, huh, that's interesting. Okay. Well, how, how come all our school districts can't have a one week turnaround? Um, and you know, it really led us to make some improvements in the repair shop to our processes to really try to achieve that faster turnaround of instruments. And then another one that I'll just toss out another, you know, important metric that we track is our defect rate on repairs is how often, um, you know, per thousand repairs, how many times do we, do we make a mistake and then have to repair that instrument over again? Um, you know, from our customer's perspective, um, you know, there's nothing worse than sending an instrument in and then having it come back broken. Um, you know, so, so we really want to make sure that, that, if they send it to us, they know and they can trust us to fix it right the first time that we get it in. Um, you know, because the you know second a second having to do a second repair is is if you think about it, you're into week three or four of the of the downtime of that instrument. And it, going all the way back to to what I was saying before, these are devices that are necessary for these students. So that means there's a student who's in a lesson group who has three or four weeks of falling behind the rest of the lesson group. You know, ultimately, what does that mean for that student? How successful can that student really be? And so, so we're we're constantly trying to make sure that we're getting out of the way of the academic achievement of our students, and really thinking about how we can equip them for success in the classroom. I think that's so smart, and I think you know you're getting beyond the idea of I'm renting you this violin, and instead of like I we are your partner in learning music, and part of our yeah. responsibility as partnership is making sure you have a functional instrument at all times or with at all times within reason, and finding every way as possible to make that really within all times and to minimize that downtime. That totally, you a valued partner, not just for the parent, the student, but uh, perhaps even more importantly, the educator, which I. I think it's really important. You mentioned you were measuring yeah. the uh, downtime, and I love—I I always love those little pithy business sayings. You know, what what gets measured gets done, and uh, or what gets measured gets managed, and what's written is real, all that kind of stuff. Uh, when you were tracking that repair turnaround time, um, could you talk a little bit about two things? Could you talk to us a little bit about like what the technology was of how you were tracking, you know, your repair turnaround time, and then also maybe one or two big things that you guys found that helped to speed up that uh, delivery on repair? Oh, absolutely. So um, well, I'll tell you how we track it now and I'll tell you how we started tracking it. And, uh, okay. Maybe there's a general lesson in, in there about IT systems. So the way that we track it now, we, we actually in 2014 um, ripped out the, um, the software that we had been using. We're using a software called AMSI or AMSI. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was a sort of a retail point of sale software. Um, we replaced that with a customized solution that we created that runs on salesforce.com. And, and that really allowed us to, to fine tune um, what metrics we're able to track and what metrics we're able to, to view in the system. So, you know, at any given time in real time, I can tell you what percentage of our, of our, um, of our repairs hit their, um, uh, uh, you know, hit their standard for timeliness. Um, and that's something we review weekly with the managers in the repair shop to say, how, how are we doing over time? And, and, and our software makes that really easy to do. However, when we started doing this, Donovan, we were doing it at Microsoft Excel. And I got to tell you, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with a good, simple solution. And, um, you know, what we had, you know, we just made a, a, an Excel tracker and our repair, we have a repair, like a service writer, um, we call him repair administrator. Repair administrator was responsible for, for logging every service ticket on that tracker and logging the date that the instrument came in and the date that the instrument got done. In addition to a couple other variables, but I mean, that was the lion's share of it for that turnaround time metric. 
Um, and you know, that Excel spreadsheet allowed us to calculate the number. Um, you know, I, I think in a lot of cases it's tempting to try to put a really complicated or fancy or flashy solution together, Mm -hmm. um, to, to, to get numbers or to get data or to run your business from an IT standpoint, you know, sometimes all you need is a good old Excel spreadsheet and, and, uh, and, and some basic math. And I, and I think that can be a really successful way to do it. And certainly is a low cost way to do it. Yeah, I love that. So let's shift gears just a little bit and tell me a little bit more. Uh, so it says what's obviously a big, you know, your main core of your business is the ban and orchestra rental business. Uh, tell me a little bit about what your specific role is in the business and kind of what your average day and average week looks like. <laughs> sure, I can try. Uh, it seems like no two days are, are the same. Um, so, uh, you know, my my role in the company, I, I have... Um, uh, a few direct reports that I can kind of go through to, to, to give you a feel for, for what it is that I do. I, I see my role in the company and my main job, it all boils down to making sure that our strategy is sound, that we're headed in the right direction, basically, that we're, that we're conscious of, our, of what our competitors are doing in the marketplace and that we're set up to win and to grow in the marketplace. I think that's my number one job. Um, and then my number two job is to make sure that the company has the right resources in order to, to accomplish that goal. Um, so, uh, you know, when, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, a team that's overburdened and not having enough time, you know, have I put the right, uh, people in place, you know, have I hired enough people or when it comes to, you know, something as simple as musical instruments, it's my job to make sure the fleet's big enough to fill of our, fill all of our orders. Um, and that we have enough, uh, you know, supplies for things like, uh, you know, instrument repairs and, and keeping the shop clean, you know, ultimately that, you know, I place those orders, but it's ultimately my responsibility to make sure that, that, that the direct direction is correct, that the strategy is correct, and that the resources are in place. And that, sure. that I think is, is, that's the way that I view my role. Um, you know, literally, uh, you know, I have probably too many direct reports. Um, and it's something that, uh, that I think is, 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 is just kind of a challenge in a company our size. So our total staff right now is 34 people. Um, we're, we're big enough, um, that we have some management in place, but we're not so big that it's easy for us to add overhead. So as I look at creating levels of management, which, you know, you might find in a really big company. And I mean, I came out of management consulting, um, you know, where some of our clients, uh, were just these massive, you know, 10,000 people organizations, you know, they can have managers, managing managers, managing managers, and, <laughs> and these really clear lines of, of responsibility and organization. And that's just not feasible in a, in a team of 34. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, so a lot of time, a lot of time gets spent, you know, kind of filling in those gaps. And, and ultimately I think that's something that, that the owner, um, you know, ends up doing in a lot of businesses our size. Uh, and then the last thing is, and, and, and unfortunately this requires kind of shoving all the other stuff out of the way. I think I'm one of our more effective salespeople, at least in terms of large account selling and, and forming relationships with school districts. Now we've got some just fantastic talent on our school service team. And I'm so proud of all the growth that, that they've created. Um, I, you know, I'm also conscious of the fact that, that, um, you know, it's, it's maybe not my skills in particular, but it's the fact that it says owner on my business card. Yep. Um, but you know, when you walk into a room with owner on your business card, um, you know, it, it, it creates a sense of occasion that can be really helpful as you're trying to get a, a, a large account. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I try to block out all that other stuff that, that, you know, is, is nagging at me and, and, and taking demands on my time. Um, and really trying to stay focused on that, on that, um, uh, on that sales piece and really trying to spend time out with our clients, you know, working with our existing clients and, and making sure that we have healthy relationships with our existing clients. And then also helping the team to build the relationships with the new clients, because just by virtue of that title on the, on the business card, it, it's, it's something that, that I happen to have a pretty big advantage in. Yeah. Are you familiar with the, uh, Gino Wickman book traction? or EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. Have you heard any of that or uh, read any of that? Uh, I have a copy of the book. Can't say that I've read it. I did <laughs> see a, uh, a, a presentation um, uh, on, that, on that framework. And I, and I think there's a lot of, of really, um, really good uh, uh, foundation for that framework. I think that you know, what the, the, one of the big takeaways that I, that, that I got from that, that uh, framework and um, and there are many others, but but for us in particular, you know, it's a concept of 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 just 
communicating clearly and just making sure that everybody understands the priorities and from top to bottom, um, you know, making sure that those priorities are, are, are kept in perspective. And again, I think that's something that, that really the owner needs to do. I mean, there are certain things in our business, um, uh, that, that just need to be repeated over and over and over again. And, you know, there's certain things that I say probably that people say, Oh, here goes Randy again about X. Um, but that, that's important to, to have that level of repetition and to really be the one who's, who's carrying the torch for the priorities in the company all the way through. So that, that, uh, there, and there are a few frameworks like that, but the, that, that's one of the big things I think that, um, that, you know, in that EOS framework, um, that, that I think is really valuable. Yeah, that's, uh, we use that system here at Springfield Music. And, um, you know, as we kind of grew and, and added to our team, we just found that it was very difficult to get uh, everyone uh, on the same page. And as, you know, Patrick Lencioni writes, uh, he talks about how if you can get everyone in a company rowing the same direction at the same time, you can take over any industry uh, against any opposition at any time. And, uh, but it's very difficult to get that done. And part of that communication is also so understanding proper roles and who should be doing what and the best way to do it. And when you were describing your role, he, he kind of talks about how about half companies will have someone at the top of the organization that he calls a visionary. And that person is kind of handling, you know, key accounts, uh, large relationships, solving big problems, and really trying to focus on just like the big, challenging, hairy issues and opportunities. And as you were just talking through it, that just made me think of it because that's exactly what, what you're doing which is fantastic. And and the other half of the companies don't have that and they just have what uh, someone that's basically serving what they call an integrator role. They're just the person that kind of keeps things moving along and and uh, they've got they know their plan and they just keep working their plan and they're not out there trying to do new things or big things necessarily. They're just doing, you know, kind of kind of like I said working their plan. And uh, you can have a very successful business doing that too. But uh, if you're in a situation where you have to solve big problems or you're trying to, like if you're an up and comer or you're the challenger or something like that, usually you got to have someone that's in that visionary role. But it's just kind of interesting. Yeah. So one, one of my best, uh, yeah, just on, just on that topic, because I think this could be a, a really helpful one, you know, to kind of distill that down. This is just one of the most wonderful pieces of advice that I got from, from another friend who um, owned a records management business. They did paper shredding and, and document storage. And his advice was spend as much time as you can working on the business instead of working in the business. Yeah. And I just think that's so relevant as you think about all the things that, that on a day to day basis, and you ask me kind of what my day's like, and no two days are the same. And, you know, there's just constantly that, that struggle of saying, you know, gosh, you know, maybe I should go help out with this, or, you know, oh, I'm not sure that's going right. Maybe I should, you know, go, go clean that up. And, um, you know, there's just always that tug to want to solve problems and fix things, but that's kind of working in the business. And so what I want to be doing is working on the business and say, where are we going? How do we get everybody aligned to, to get there? And, and, and in particular, really, really uh, work a lot with, with our customers, both existing and future and, and, and get to know them better. Yeah. That's, that's always great advice. So tell me what you're working on right now. Which is <laughs> what am I not working on right now? Uh, well, so, uh, it's February, so we're going through um, our financial review of the prior year. So we've we've closed the books from 2018, but are supporting our uh, our accounting, the independent accounting firm that's doing the review of, of 2018. So I was answering some questions for them earlier earlier today. Um, I was uh, communicating with email uh, with a, another uh, with an owner of another business who's who's getting to be sort of at the end of his career and talking to him about a succession plan. And, you know, maybe perhaps there's a role for, for us in, in doing that acquisition. So I was exploring that. Um, you know, I met with my uh, head of customer service today to talk to her about um, a couple of general issues that she identified in, in areas where we could get a little bit better at processing um, what we call inbound instruments, which are instruments that we're looking to find in schools but haven't been able to locate. And um, and you know how we process you know, customer delinquencies, which is you know a, a factor. It's a real, fortunately a pretty small factor, but a, but certainly a factor in our business. Um, and so we met to do that. And uh, what else? I'm, I'm also have a pile of papers on my desk that I need to sort through. <laughs> so you're that's just you just literally got the 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 rundown of uh, of Randy Shaler's Friday there. I love it. I love it, man. 
So let's talk a little bit about our industry because I think, you know, with you coming, um, you know, really primarily from outside our industry, whereas I think most of the people in our industry have come from inside it, uh, I'm really <laughs> eager to know what you think both what's right and wrong with it. And uh, kind of like to get perspective on that. Um, well, let me start with what's right with it. I mean, I think that that our entire industry understands uh, the role of music education as sort of the bedrock that, that our industry is founded on. Um, you know, you need more people making music in this country. And a lot of that happens in schools. But I mean, look a little bit more broader in our industry, and this is really a category we're focused in, but, you know, the guitar industry depends on people wanting to play the guitar. Um, and, and I think, you know, that, that music education focus and that making music focus, I think is something our industry does really well. And, and I credit, um, our industry associations with that, um, uh, you know, I credit NAM and, and, and all the great messaging and, and education that NAM does, you know, Joe Lamond is a, is a standard bearer for, for our really focus on, on making music and making music education better. Um, so I think our industry is really well aligned on that, you know, and I'd compliment NASMD on the same, on the same function. So the, you know, National Association of School Music Dealers is, is super focused on, on how can we better support school music programs um, and that benefits not just school music dealers, but I would argue benefits you know all 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 uh, uh, music retailers and, and musical instrument manufacturers um, you know throughout the whole value chain. So I think the industry is really well aligned around that. Um, now now should I move on to, to maybe yeah. what I think is is uh, some opportunities for, yeah. for us and some problems <laughs> that we need to solve. Um, all right, well, so the first one, and this is just in my personal opinion, but I think we all ought to be mindful of the fact that 30 cents on every dollar of value that we deliver to consumers, um, at least in the U.S. market, goes across the cash register at, at our largest retailer. Um, and that's a company that's got some challenges right now with their balance sheet. Um, you know, it was a bank capital buyout and, uh, right around the time, same time as, as Toys R Us was. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we be, need to be mindful of how that's going to play out. It certainly looks like it's like, it's, uh, you know, going okay for them, at least in the short term. Um, but you know, uh, financial distress of, of such a big player in the industry, you know, could be a real big problem for us. And, and, you know, as much as we're a competitor with them, we're not really a guitar center competitor, but certainly a competitor with music and arts. Um, we are not rooting for their demise or, or at least for their disorderly demise. Um, because I think the ripple effects of that would be felt throughout the industry in ways that, that it's impossible to even imagine. So, um, you know, I think that's, I think that's a big challenge and one that we need to, to really get real about. Um, you know, and then the other thing is in, and I think Donovan, I think you're part of the solution for this. I think we need to, to, to be better about spreading good ideas. I think there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of success going on in our industry. It's just not widely distributed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's like the, the future is here. It's just not, uh, it's just not everywhere yet. Um, you know, and I think there are a lot of people doing interesting things. And, and I think to the extent that, that, that we can share with each other, um, and not be so, so concerned about competition, right. Not be so concerned that somebody's going to steal our great idea and that that's going to somehow cost us, uh, but you know, to share and, and, you know, cause when, when we get better as an industry, that tide raises all ships. Yep. That's true. Well, and the and if you come up with good ideas, people will certainly try to steal them. But uh, you know, many of the ideas and things we've put into place in our company that have been successful have just taken a lot of work to to make work, and there was a lot of hard lessons learned. And anyone else who tries to uh, replicate those is probably going to go through some of those same challenges. And you know, that's just the way it goes. And I I know at our company, I mean, I'll be totally honest, we've stolen many ideas from other people, uh, both in our industry and outside of it. And, you know, you just can't let, you know, to me, there's so much more to be gained by being willing to share and be willing to learn uh, than it would be just to try to kind of keep everything to yourself and, and uh, hope that you could, you know, uh, reduce your competition's effectiveness by not sharing anything, you know, and we're certainly yeah the better retailers in our industry being more and more open to sharing and frankly, less and less concerned about what their competition may or may not know about 
about themselves. So I, th- I think you're exactly right, oh, even God, though it's a yeah. hard thing to get over, you know? <laughs> but it's, it's kind of, you know, you're just going to do a lot better once you open up, I think, and start taking some of these ideas. Yeah. And, well, one of my, had some one of my favorite TV shows right now is, uh, is billions on Showtime. And oh, there's yeah. a, there's a quote in one of the episodes, Bobby Axelrod, who is the, the, the figurehead of Axe Capital is kind of the, the hero slash villain in that show. And, uh, there's a scene where he's showing some sensitive information to one of his competitors and he makes the comment that just because somebody sees a bruce lee movie doesn't mean they can do karate and i think we can all keep that uh keep that good uh good sense of of realism in mind as we're sharing things with the industry to try to make the industry stronger yeah no i i totally agree with you totally agree with you um have you had any mentors in our industry anyone that you've kind of admired or looked up to Oh, t- uh, tons. Um, and, and I, you know, I've only been in the industry a short time, so it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's tough to say mentor relationships at, at this point, but I mean, a couple people who have just been tremendously helpful to me. Um, and, and that I've really looked up to, um, one, uh, in particular that jumps out in my mind is John Stoner at Conselmer, um, president and CEO of Conselmer and then, and then his CFO, Judy Minnick between John and Judy. Um, I've, I've learned a ton, not only about, um, how they operate their highly successful business in our industry. Although it's a manufacturer, obviously a different end of the value chain. Um, but you know, I think the, the two of them are, are tremendous leaders and, um, uh, you know, kindred spirits in the way that they really approach the, 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 just how vital it is to, to support music education and their approach to their business with Con Selmer is, is one that I just really agree with. You know, they're, they're constantly reinvesting in, in the classrooms and, and doing that with a very long-term focused approach. You know, they're not, they're not looking for the quick wins. They're not, you're not in those, you know, forming those teacher relationships, you know, to try to, try to uh, you know, make a buck or make a quick sale. Um, you know, they're really playing the long game. And so, you know, I've looked up to, to John and Judy for, for a really long time. I think they're fantastic. Um, you know, as, and, and in terms of, of other retailers, you know, I, I constantly meet retailers that, that I think, um, you know, do a fantastic job. And Donovan, you're one of them. I mean, you know, you and I talk at a very high level about our businesses and, and we're able to share. And I think that's great. Um, you know, and I think there's just a lot of, of other retailers who, who are doing great things and, and, and who I learn from on a continual basis, whether it's at, at NAM or NASMD or, or any other meetings that I get to have with other retailers. I, I always, I always leave those, uh, you know, reinvigorated and, and with a sense of, of, of something new that I can try, uh, back at Zeswitz. Yeah. No, I love that. And it's that I think there's so many in our industry that are willing to share and, and eager to share both their successes and struggles. And I think it's just one of the things that's about it that's so beautiful. And I find that there's way more people that are open to talking and sharing. And I've been a board member for the Independent Music Store Owners Forum and uh, been involved a lot of that. And there's just, you know, people out there want to share their successes, share their struggles and share their ideas. And they just want to find a way to connect and and share something that's really near and dear to them, which is their business. I mean, our business is like a child, you know. I mean, it's something that you just you work really hard on, and and uh, you, you you know you want people to love it uh, like you do, and and uh, therefore it's you're eager to get feedback and hear what other people think and and get ideas to make it better. So going back to just kind of some of your uh, uh, skill set and things like that, what do you think that your biggest asset is? And it maybe could either be, you could take this question either just personally, like, you know, about you, you could even maybe think about with your business, the, big, the best asset, whichever just sort of immediately comes to mind. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think I, probably the, the biggest thing that, 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 that I do and the biggest thing that, that, that our company does to, to advance and to drive forward is to be um, uncomfortable with staying the same, to be uncomfortable with the status quo. Um, and, you know, that's something, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, I turned down a bunch of job offers to, to do this search fund thing. And I, you know, I could have gone for work for, you know, back to my consulting firm, which would have been a great career or, you know, to, to a, uh, I had an offer from a from a, just an awesome packaged foods company, just blue chip company, just fantastic uh, uh, organization. And you know, I, I struck out and did my own thing. Uh, I'm actually probably more risk averse than than that move would have suggested. I, I absolutely hate risk, um, but you know, just wanted to wanted to do my own thing and, and and confident that I could do my own thing and confident that I could that I could do something well and do it better. Um, so so I guess that and I, I struggle to come up with what I think the label for that is, but but maybe. You 
know, it comes down to something along the lines of just kind of dissatisfaction with the way things, things currently are and, and confidence in the ability to make things better. Um, so that, that I would say for me personally, and then also for our business, I hope that our business is, is, is constantly uncomfortable with doing things as well as we did them last year or, or, or uncomfortable with our current level of performance and constantly looking to say, all right, well, that, that was good. How can we keep making that better? How can we, how can we get that a little improved or, or, or how can we, how can we make our customer a little bit happier in that situation? And cause I think that's, that's really our, you know, that's really what, what, what keeps a business growing. And, and, um, you know, I really think that, that if a business isn't growing, it's dying in some way, shape or form. And if you're just trying to do the same thing over and over again, or if you're just trying to stay flat and stay constant, I just, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think that's a, that's a long-term strategy for, for long-term success. I think you gotta yeah. be growing. You gotta be putting an envelope. Yeah, exactly. So then what's your worst habit? <laughs> um, I think it may be something along the lines of, of the inverse of what I just told you, which is uh, <laughs> the, the other edge of that sword. So, you know, um, I, I tend to uh, uh, be a perfectionist and, and, you know, like I told you about, you know, the, the temptation to want to work in the business instead of working on the business. Um, you know, sometimes, as, you know, as I see something that's not performing as well as I think it should be, I just want to fix it. And, um, you know, I constantly have to be reminding myself of, of really what's going to drive the business forward. And, and, you know, maybe that comes from my consulting background as well. You know, I just, I, I've, I've worked with really big companies on how they do, for example, um, you know, their, their procure to pay process, like how they do POs and, and, you know, make sure they're ordering from the lowest cost supplier. And then how, when they get the invoices, how they match the PO, the package slip to the invoice and, and sort of how they keep all those records and keep everything organized. So I know like what a, what a, a really solid procure to pay process looks like. And so when I see something goes wrong in our procure to pay process, I just, Oh gosh, I just want to fix it so badly. But then again, you know, I have to remind myself, um, you know, there are only 24 hours in a day. <laughs> and if, you know, is it, is that the highest and best use of my time? Is that really what I should be spending my time on now instead of, and the, the one that, that I've really found has made the biggest difference instead of going out and being with customers. Right. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, we, you know, we, we made an inefficient order and, and didn't qualify for a shipping discount. And, uh, that was $32 and 68 cents that, that we really shouldn't have spent to, to, to ship that product when we should have. Right. But you know, that is, is minuscule in terms of, of the, uh, or compared to how about picking up the phone and, and, you know, calling one of our clients and saying, Hey, how's it going? And, and, you know, that has the so much, so much greater potential. And so that's something that I find that I constantly have to be reminding myself of. Uh, so smart, man. So smart. And you're exactly right. You know, one of my favorite people in our company is our VP of finance. And one of her skills is she's often able to put a price on a problem, you know, and uh, if we're, we're talking about some kind of issue and she'll look at it, she's like, yeah, we could do that. But, you know, it looks like annually it's about a three hundred dollar problem. We really want to spend thousands of dollars to fix it, and, and I just think, good point. Let's move along to something more productive, and, and that's kind of your. I love it. That is so great. Like, and someone who can just kind of put that kind of clarity to it really helps to reframe what you're doing here. And I, I, I love that. I really love that. It's great. So, uh, tell me, where do you see uh, biz, your business? Where do you see that's with music in the next year, the next three years, and the next ten years? Um, wow. So in the next, well, so I'll split that into kind of two questions. So I, I mean, I see the, the, the Zeswitz by itself, I see Zeswitz by itself continuing to grow organically. Um, we have in Eastern Pennsylvania, um, a pretty solid share of our marketplace, but there's still a lot of white space on, on the map. So one of the things and it's hung up in my office, it's in our conference room and we've got copies of it all over the place. We just have a map of the state with all the school districts on it. Um, there are, uh, still quite a few school districts, even with, with five and a half years of owning the company and a substantial amount of growth in that period, there's still some school districts that we don't serve and we don't have a, a good, strong relationship with. And, and literally, uh, we're driving through them, uh, you know, at least once a week to get to other school districts that we do serve. Um, so, so I see continued organic growth for Zezwitz in the, in the one to three to probably still to the 10 year time frame. Um, given how long it can take to, to build some of these school district relationships over time. Um, the other thing is, you know, I'm constantly in the market for, for other, um, 
retail uh, businesses in our industry to purchase, especially to the extent that they're rentals focused. So we did our second acquisition in, I bought Zeswitz in 2013. We did our second acquisition in 2018 um, of another uh, smaller music rental service here in Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, and I'm hopeful that in 2019 or certainly shortly thereafter, um, we'll be able to announce um, at least one other transaction uh, that that could be an acquisition for us. So now that we've now that we've we've really developed our our ability to run the 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 business at Zeswitz the way that we that we want to, and, and we've and we've developed those skills. Now we want to kind of take our show on the road and 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 acquire some other businesses and and really start to leverage that experience and that and that uh, and that capability and on a bigger scale. So I think I think those two things are going to kind of come together to. To, to continue to increase the size of the business um, over the near term. And, and, you know, hopefully, hopefully some of these acquisitions will make, you know, I, I think um, there are owners in our industry that continue to get older um, without succession planning. And so I think somebody's going to need to acquire these, those, those businesses. And if we can figure out, you know, the, the, the right targets, you know, hopefully that'll be us. Yeah. I love that. So last couple of questions uh, and we can, you can have some fun with this if you want, but if you could send a message to yourself 10 years ago, I know you're still kind of a young guy and new in this industry, but if you could send a message 10 years ago, what would you tell the younger you? <laughs> um, so let's see. So 2009, I would have been applying to business schools, uh, still working my job in consulting. If I could send a message to, to my 2009 self, um, you know, I think it would be to, to just kind of... Um, uh, uh, relax a little bit about career development. I mean, I was very, uh, intent at the time on kind of figuring out what I want to do when I grow up. And, uh, I never would have been able to predict that, that I would have ended up, uh, in the musical instrument rental industry. And, and, and I love it. And it's, it's, it's been challenging and it's been fun and it's just been, been a great career. Um, so I think, I think my 10 year olds are, uh, or going back 10 years, my advice to myself would have been, you know, just, just, to have some faith that it, that, that, that things are going to continue to get better and that, that everything's going to work out. Okay. I love it. And all right. So now let's take it the opposite direction. Let's, let's leave kind of a time capsule piece of advice to the 10 year, year older version of you. This is the, the Randy Shaler from 2029. What things do you hope that that person remembers from this time period right now in your life? Oh, that's great. Well, um, so my wife and I just had our first son. Um, oh my gosh! Eight years, sorry, six months ago. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, um, you know, with a with a one and a half year old, um, you know, at home, I hope that my self, you know, ten years from now, looks back and. I hope that 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 I was the kind of dad to him in the first ten, you know, eleven years of his life um, that that I had. I mean, I you know, I just an awesome relationship with my dad, and he was super present and, and super involved. And um, and I hope that my my uh, my myself in twenty twenty nine, I I would hope that he's the kind of family man that I want him to be because I think that's going to be uh, uh, ultimately, you know, when I'm much older, I think that will be a much more important accomplishment than anything I'm going to do in the, in the musical musical instrument rental business. That's for sure. <laughs> that's certainly true. That's certainly true. That's beautiful, man. I, I have no doubt that you're going to be a great father because you're a very thoughtful and considerate guy. And, and uh, you know, have, having that as a parent, I had, uh, my dad was much like that as well. And, uh, but it was also, there was no doubt that he was my dad. And uh, I think I'm sure you'll have the same relationship with your son as well. So, man, this oh, yeah. is a lot of fun. Well, thank you. Uh, I think uh, this is, you know, we're going to definitely have to come back and talk on, uh, catch more topics down the road because I think we just scratched the surface on on some of the things that you have to bring to the table. But for those people that are not familiar with Zestwitz Music and for those people that haven't had the opportunity to spend much time with you, spend much time with you, I think this is a great uh, kind of, uh, you know, scratch the surface and a, and a great way for them to get to meet you because you're super sharp and, and bright guy. So I'm super glad to have you as one of my first guests. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, getting to do a second round uh, of this kind of a deeper conversation with you further. Oh, I love it, Donovan. This was a lot of fun. And, and you've asked me some really, really insightful questions. So I, I really enjoyed it. And, and hey, I'll give a quick plug to your listeners. If, if, uh, if folks want to reach out, uh, I, I love making connections in, in our industry or in any, any industry or anybody who found, finds this, uh, you know, this stuff interesting and relevant to their business. Odds are that that sounds like a, a friendship that, 
that I'd love to have. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd encourage people to, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn or, or get my email address or, you know, contact us at Seswitz. I'd love to, uh, to meet and, and talk more about this in depth. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. If you'd like help with your business, check out musicretailconsulting.com for articles, resources, and coaching and consulting services. Also, you can subscribe to this podcast so you're aware of future updates and rate and review while you're at it. Thanks for listening.